0: Borders are such strange, artificial places. They're so arbitrary. You go when you're next to the Rio Grande, you can throw a stone across, and that's Mexico with this entirely different cultural world, different legal world, different everything, different rights. Uh, You cross the border from El Paso to Juarez, radical changes. Musical borders, too.
1: Throw a rock from opera and you can end up in rock or pop, or conunto, and composer Graham Reynolds isn't afraid to throw those rocks, to really stretch the metaphor. In other words, he crosses a lot of musical borders. Today on Interstates, Graham and I talk about border-crossing opera, scoring films, and how his music teachers encouraged his non-traditional path. Then we have Ross Gay being delighted by fungal hyphae. That's all coming up right after this. On the face of it, seeing people acting out a story, maybe singing, all backed up by intense, sweeping, emotionally charged music, you'd think that would be an irresistible combination, right? But, you know, opera's not that many people's cup of tea. No. So I uh, I brought in Kate Young, host of Earth Eats here at WFIU. Kate is an artistically sensitive and thoughtful person, but she's not a classical music nerd. So I thought she'd have a good civilian's perspective— Would you go if you had free tickets to La Traviata? No. What if the opera featured three famous tenors? No. What if the opera had an electric guitar? No. Guitar and drum set? No. What if it was a rock opera set on the Texas-Mexico border featuring a live band on stage with the composer leading the band at the keyboards, and it also incorporated video and a bunch of different music styles from the Texas-Mexico area? Uh, yeah,
2: maybe. Sure.
1: Well, you missed that one, so you're out of luck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks. I think i got to get back to my show now. Okay. The show being Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. All right. Chances are you know someone who feels similarly to Kate. I think it's safe to say opera doesn't occupy a huge place in the American popular imagination. But the movies... That's an art form most of us can get behind, and that's probably where the most popular orchestral music lives these days. Think of Darth Vader's March, or the mysterious and yet also heroic music that surrounds Hogwarts, or the grand sweep of the Jurassic Park theme. And that's just music by John Williams. The movies are one of the main ways most of us encounter composed music these days. It just seems too esoteric otherwise. But I think that might be changing. Composers in the 21st century are experimenting not just with new sounds, that never stopped, but with making music that's more visceral and less abstract, that's actually interested in connecting with an audience. It's less confined, less defined. Maybe you call it classical, maybe it's rock or punk or funk or something else. One of those composers who wants to connect with audiences, put on a good show, but also make film scores, and yes, operas, is Graham Reynolds. Graham is based in Austin, Texas. He's a band leader and improviser, but he's also interested in composed music. He's scored films for Richard Linkletter and others. He's written music for ballets and theater. He's written symphonies, string quartets, and that opera that I mentioned to Kate. It's called Pancho Villa from a safe distance, and he brought it to Bloomington at the end of March. I have to admit I felt a bit like Kate about the prospect of going to see it. But once I sat down, I started to warm up to it. The stage was set with keyboards in the center and a desk on either side. That's where the two singers ended up. In the back, there was a drum set and a tuba and chairs for a few other musicians. As we waited for the show to start, there was music piped in, and there was a screen at the back of the stage that showed images of a young man playing with a dog, digging in the dirt, and looking off into the distance. Eventually, the musicians started to wander onto the stage. Violinist, cellist, electric guitarist, Graham, the two singers, one or two others. The mezzo-soprano, Liz Cass, wore a period dress with full skirts and a long dress coat. The tenor, Paul Sanchez, was in a suit and cowboy hat. The opera is a pastiche of songs about Pancho Villa's life. As you'll hear from Graham, it's not chronological. It dives into the legend as much as the biography of the Mexican revolutionary general. It really leaves Pancho Villa's life open to interpretation. It came about because an organization called Ballroom Marfa had asked Graham to write an opera. Marfa, Texas is deep in the Chihuahuan Desert. It's only about 2,000 people, but if you've heard of it, it's because it's a huge arts town. Ballroom Marfa is one of the arts organizations, and they had told Graham they'd like an opera.
0: And so Sean, my partner and the director of the opera, and I sort of drove around West Texas looking for an operatic figure. Opera can mean a lot of things, but we knew we wanted at least parts of it to have that Western opera voice, that big, huge sound. And so we were looking for a big huge character and West Texas has a lot of big huge characters but we hadn't found the story yet and we were in El Paso staying in the hotel that it turned out Pancho Villa had lived in at the beginning of the Mexican Revolution and had his headquarters there the revolutionary newspaper was there or the uh, uh, government in exile was there and Right across the river is Juarez, and there was the Battle of Juarez was there, and that's when we figured, out, ah, this is our West Texas figure that's larger than life. The when you read his giant biography, it deals right away with legend, myth, fact about Pancho Villa is, is all a mess. Like nobody really knows what's true and what's not true. Unlike most revolutionaries, he did not come from the intellectual class or privileged class. He came from a very working class background and was an unusual figure in in all sorts of ways. So we asked uh, Lagartias Toradas Al Sol, a theater company in Mexico City, if they would do the libretto. And we went. On a trip through Chihuahua with them so there's the Chihuahuan desert and there's the state of Chihuahua where a lot of Pancho Villa's activities took place he's from Durango but in that whole area and sort of explore that with them try to figure out what the piece was going to be and we decide on more of a collage approach and taking pieces of his life and sewing them together not in a straight narrative or it's certainly not in sequential order it doesn't start with his birth and go to his death or anything like that um and then they went and wrote the libretto and we went back and forth where i would give them sketches of music we'd get their thoughts on, on music and then they'd send bits of text until we were had an opera
1: dress rehearsal for this opera that takes place on both sides of the Texas-Mexico border was on the night of Donald Trump's election. The show premiered two days later.
0: We were an hour north of the border in Marfa. The the, the piece has a lot to do with the uh, Mexico-Texas-Mexico-America border. And uh, when we started, Trump was not in the race. But by that time, the border was a very hot topic in, in politics and sort of a Vehicle for hatred, and we were trying to build these bridges instead.
1: Yeah, I was gonna ask if Trump's
0: ascendancy changed your relationship to the peace. The peace itself didn't change hugely because those so many of those issues existed prior, but I think the reception of it and the context of it changed radically and it became so much more immediately relevant the border wall with with all of that and so we've continued that conversation we have a mxtx is another project we've been working on another sort of texas mexico collaboration so we've tried to continue the conversation felt vital enough we tried to continue it
1: tell me about it musically
0: <laughs> so i'm a white composer uh, from, I've been in Texas for over 30 years, but I'm from the Northeast. We knew from the beginning we had to be careful about cultural appropriation. And and so that was Tia's coming on, Adrian Casada coming on, Paul Sanchez coming on, various collaborators being involved in the project and tried to be very open about that fact and my background and where I was coming from and that goes into the title Pancho Villa from a safe distance that hotel in El Paso where he lived and where we stayed you can see Juarez right across the river there you know bullet holes from the Battle of Juarez in the walls but there's a famous picture of people dressed up in fancy outfits watching the battle across the river from the safety of the American side. And so we're drawing a parallel with ourselves there. We're, we can study Pancho Villa, who is a very complex figure, but also a very violent figure from this historically safe distance. And so the acknowledgement of my background is supposed to be wrapped right into the title. But at the same time, I did study Mexican music quite a bit. and didn't wanna deny that vocabulary in a music about this legendary Mexican figure. We're four hours from the border. Texas used to be part of Mexico. It would be strange not to acknowledge where we are geographically and culturally and to be in conversation with Mexican-American and Mexican artists who are such a large part of the culture there. And I can't pretend that I haven't heard that music or that it's not part of uh, the fabric of, of the culture there.
1: Were there uh, tensions that ended up coming up around that as over the course of the process?
0: If they did, no one told me <laughs> as far as I know. I'm trying to remember if we had any arguments about... The closest to tension was me being interested in a couple of different styles of Mexican music that were not Geographically relevant to the Chihuahuan Desert area, and having to understand that that style does not have a role in this music here. So there was there was some learning going on at how geographically specific some some music vocabulary is. No Borders are such strange, artificial places um, and they're so arbitrary. You go when you're next to the Rio Grande, you can throw a stone across and that's Mexico with this entirely different cultural world, different legal world, different everything, different rights. Um, you cross the border from El Paso to Juarez, radical changes, but it's all, it's so, Arbitrary, and it become such a, a huge national conversation. And being in a state that's on the border with Mexico and part of that conversation, and social justice being such a big part of art making right now, that felt like the conversation that we were best positioned to be part of. But then personally, I've been interested in Mexico since I was a little kid, and so it's also indulging myself in pursuing and researching and and getting involved with music and culture and history in a way that's just a pleasure as well. It's, It's serving a broader social need, hopefully, but also just personally satisfying and exciting.
1: ladies and gentlemen, was Pancho Villa from a safe distance. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear how Graham got started as a musician. It had to do with his mom being cool. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. I'm talking with composer Graham Reynolds. He's a band leader. He's written scores for films, composed string quartets. He's also the artistic director of a nonprofit called Golden Hornet that helps bring new music into the world. He started playing because of his mom, but not because he looked up to her as a musician. Well,
0: not exactly. I was around five, and she was taking piano lessons, and I thought my mom was cool, so I asked to take piano lessons. And then my brother was about a year younger, and he thought my mom was cool, and he wanted to come with us when we went, so he asked for piano lessons. And a year or two later, she quit, and we kept going all, all the way through school. What we didn't know until decades later was that the reason she quit was not because she got sick of it, but because we couldn't afford all three lessons. So she quit so we could play.
1: It's not as if he was totally on board from the beginning.
0: More years than not, we were way into it. But there were, it would come in, in waves where we'd want to quit So uh, we would only be required to play 15 minutes a day, and we would usually do it before school. So it was sort of part of the morning routine with the idea that if a year after doing that we still wanted to quit, that we could quit. But we always made it through that year and the wave was rising again, we were into it. So usually we played far more than 15 minutes.
1: point did you realize you wanted to start taking this seriously?
0: So whoever my best teacher was at the time, that's what I wanted to do with my life. In grade school and in high school in particular, both those I had extraordinary music teachers. So the, the most constant through the whole thing was great music teachers. So that's the thing that stuck. I think if I had more great science teachers, I, I might be a scientist instead.
1: Was there a particular moment when you were like, okay, this is actually what I'm gonna do?
0: I know by high school, I, was, I wasn't I was really questioning it anymore. I wasn't switching depending on who the teacher was. And the only discussion in the family was whether I'd go to a music school that only did music or go to a liberal arts school and major in music. And the argument of a broader education won. But then, in college, I quit my music department after a year, so I I ended up studying history and focusing on Latin America anyway. So, in a way, I was glad. Music schools and the way I approached it were not in sync, really.
1: You do so many different kinds of music. And I'm curious if you were, were you like a record junkie? Um, just collecting all over the place, listening to everything. What was your high school? Because I feel like that's those are the formative years in some ways of our taste. So tell me about how you were discovering things too in high school.
0: Uh, Record-wise, yeah, we the record stores had dollar record bins and one record store had a whole room of dollar records. And so I was very precious with my money because every dollar was a whole record. So I would hesitate to buy, I don't know, fries or something because I could get fries or it could have a whole bur- a whole album. So yeah, I ended up collecting thousands of records and my freshman year roommate at college was distraught because I'd filled up the room with records. I learned not to bring the whole collection maybe after that. Um, and so that my listening was just more and more and more and more as many different things as I could Listen to and high contrast was just the way I like to listen. So something super heavy followed by something super delicate, followed by something very poppy, followed by something very intellectual or something like that. So there wasn't really a hierarchy so much as uh, interest in contrast and new territory.
1: By the time he was listening to all kinds of records, Graham and his brother had already been exploring new territory in music for years.
0: We started making up our own music in late elementary school, I guess. Maybe before that, but it became very overt by then. And we started doing our own music at piano recitals. Instead of playing Chopin at the classical piano recital, we'd play our own music. So our classical teacher... uh, Mrs. Godridis eventually talked to my mom and said, your sons are going in a different direction. I can't really, I don't have the tools to teach them. So she suggested that we go to a jazz teacher, not because we were playing jazz, but because we were choosing our own notes and making up our own music and doing a combination of composing and improvising. And jazz teachers knew how to handle that. So uh, we switched to uh, a Hungarian immigrant who is playing jazz around town, had no other students. And we still keep in contact a little bit and we would go see his shows. He had like fusion band with his wife and he really shaped his teaching to what we did. And so did my high school music director, which is not what college did. You know, the way that people make music starting in the 20th century was so wide-ranging you know music evolved so quickly in the 20th century as opposed to you know if you were in England 400 years ago you had a very specific range of music you had just had any access to and then if you're in Beijing you had a very specific amount of music you had access to and that changed dramatically with recording technology and then made another leap with the internet and And so music education generally hasn't caught up to that change, but my high school teachers understood that, for them at least, the best way to to adapt to that was to adapt each student and accommodate their different directions. So our music theory class had metalhead kids and band kids and and me, And, and so a wide range of kids from very different backgrounds, and the teachers were understanding of those different aesthetics and those different approaches to music.
1: The fact that you had a music theory class in high school at all, I think it's also impressive.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a public school, but it was a great school. and like We had the regular stuff, the marching band, the concert band, the jazz band, but we also had concerts throughout the year that, you know, I think were relatively traditional, but they would evolve. Uh, solo and ensemble concert or a pops concert, and this and that. And typically, in a solo and ensemble, you'd have a cellist would play a box suite and piano player would play, you know, Chopin or something. But in these, I would play my own music, people would play in their bands. By the end, we had brought the metalheads into the circle a bit, and we're, they were doing metal guitar solos as part of this solo and ensemble concert. So it started my first year as all classical and by the end was metal and jazz and classical all mashed up and so we got to develop our personal music through school functions which was I think pretty exceptional. to college and they didn't understand that, that they didn't have that approach at all they you know we got stuck on two five ones which i didn't want to practice and i had other things i wanted to learn and my teacher would not go to the next subject until my two five ones were really solid and it's a certain chord progression used in jazz a lot and used in sort of classic american song great american songbook kind of things And, you know, I could play them in certain keys, but I wasn't good at at playing them in all the keys. And I decided pretty early on that since I was making up my own music, I didn't need to play in all the keys. (laughs) 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 That I could could practice for one hour in say C major, and another hour in C sharp, and another hour in D. Or I could spend three hours playing in C and be three times as good at C and but that approach didn't work when you they, they were you know if you're a studio player and the singer says they want to do it a step down you have to be able to do it a step down and so there's a it wasn't like there wasn't a rationale to the facility of playing in and all the keys and all the keys do sound different there's value in, in, in them But we just got stuck on this place, and and so for the first time in my life I quit piano lessons, I quit the music department, and stayed with the teachers that I was being inspired by instead.
1: You said that this was partly a conversation with your family too, about what to focus on in school, and you
0: ended up focusing on Latin American history. It does tie back to when I was young and my my dad had been teaching high school history, and basically it paid so little, and it was so challenging that he ended up quitting that and moving over to a corporate job. And he took the tiny bit of retirement money he had saved up from the the high school teaching, and we went to Mexico City for a couple weeks. I was eight or nine, something like that. was just transformative uh, a a radical sort of realignment of my thinking and exposure to totally different culture immersion in another language in a way that I'd never experienced Um, and so that interest in Mexico lasted so when I got to college I I, you know like I would always gravitated towards the teachers that I was most inspired by I started taking some Latin American history courses and had a couple of great professors, one in particular that became my advisor, and I just studied whatever class he was teaching every semester, I just stayed there. Um, That, for me, was more valuable than any specific music technique.
1: Even though you were still thinking about, you still had music in the back of your head as as a goal?
0: Yeah, I never really expected to become a historian. I mean, you're majoring in it, so you're thinking about it a little bit, but what I did musically was I just, I had gotten a drum set in high school and brought that to college and told all the bands, like, if you need a drummer, I'll play whatever. And so instead of composing my own music on piano like I had been, I spent college mostly learning how to play drums and playing in every which kind of band and doing that stuff.
1: You major in Latin American history, you're playing drums in all kinds of bands all over the place, and then you finish. Um, and is that when you then moved to Austin?
0: So when I graduated college, I you know I played piano, I played drums, these are large, difficult-to-move instruments. We also, you know, my town was about two hours east of New York, and so during college and a bit in high school, we play shows in New York. I spent a lot of time in New York. I felt like I needed to see a different part of the country. And I'd been through Austin on one road trip, and it was a music town, and you could rent a house instead of an apartment and I didn't want to rent a rehearsal space across town and get on the subway and then go to practice. I wanted to live with the instruments and be able to rehearse in the house. So Austin became a a practical place that, that would work for what I was trying to do. So I threw all my stuff in a car and drove down to Texas.
1: Through the 90s, he led bands in Austin, but he and a friend were also talking about writing string quartets.
0: Which we really hadn't done, but... We were imagining doing and so we just decided to have a concert and we hired a string quartet and wrote a concert worth of music each of us independently writing music but producing the concert together and it wasn't a non-profit at that point it was just us getting our music done this other composer peter stopchinski he had a more formal music education he knew how to do this stuff much more than I did. But then we put together an orchestral concert, a percussion ensemble concert, a brass quintet. We sort of went through all the families of Western orchestral instruments and did concerts with each of them and it became my education in orchestration and and writing for these instruments. Eventually we expanded instead of just it being about our music, invited other composers to participate and then gradually that turned into a nonprofit, and uh, Peter doesn't like meetings, and nonprofits have a lot of meetings. So eventually Peter still participates, but is not an active part anymore.
1: Graham apparently doesn't mind the meetings, though, because he's still the artistic director of the Golden Hornet, which he describes as our little
0: nonprofit
1: whose goal is to make a space in the 21st century for new composed music.
0: And so now the vast majority of the music is other composers. We have a a young composers program, an emerging composers annual concert. And then we do these uh, group commissions and an occasional commission of my stuff as well. So why did that feel like a necessary
1: organization?
0: I mean, all my friends who majored in music, they would write a lot of notes. and for an orchestra, and then maybe the school orchestra would play a shorter piece, but uh, you, you write notes and then hope someone will someday play them. And I was never interested and spending time on something that wasn't gonna happen. So it was a much more direct route. And then once I had that opportunity to have my music played regularly, I wanted to share that with other people. And we're trying to provide that, fill a hole that we saw, at least in the Austin music scene.
1: there's something here too about styles of music um, that there's you know there's there's tended to be this bifurcation of classical art music versus and you know notated scores versus rock music and so on and so forth and is, is Golden Hornet also an attempt at
0: bridging those two things exactly I mean when we first started with string quartet and so it was all notated with some improv built in but not a lot and um, and so because it was strings, people called it a classical. Uh, basically, if I had a saxophone in my group, someone would call it classical. If I, I mean, they would call it jazz. If I had a violin, they would call it classical. So classical still ends up being a word that people use about golden horn a lot, but because we were running it, we didn't have to be restricted by what people meant by that. So if I wanted to write, you know, country, big band music, I could do that and it doesn't thwart the the mission or anything like that. We needed to make something that was as versatile as our interests were in music.
1: It's time for a short break. If you're just joining us, we're talking with composer Graham Reynolds. When we come back, Graham explains why classical music got super abstract in the middle of the 20th century. Hint, it has to do with technology. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. We're talking this week with Austin-based composer, band leader, and impresario. Can I say impresario? Is that like calling someone a diva? I, I mean it in a good way. Anyway, we're talking with Graham Reynolds. He's got a band called the Golden Arm Trio. It's rarely a trio. He runs a nonprofit for contemporary composers. That's the Golden Hornet. He's scored ballets, theater, a number of Richard Linkletter's films, among many other things. One thing about Graham's music is how fun it is, including his quote unquote classical music. I played a lot of classical music in the 90s, and I don't remember it being as fun as what I've been seeing in the past couple decades. I asked Graham what changed.
0: Yeah, it's a big, long answer in a way, but trying using super broad strokes. Okay. Recording happens, music becomes hyper-specialized, and splinters dramatically, and more and more and more as time goes on. And, uh, and this
1: is in the 20th century that you're...
0: But yes. Late 1800s recording technology happens by early 20th century. It's part of the cultural fabric prior to recording all the composers, all the major composers were performers, Beethoven all the way up to Prokofiev, so so early 20th century. And so they had a relationship, a direct relationship to the audience. By mid 20th century, very few composers were performers as well. The music was so complex and so intellectual that it took a specialist to compose and it took a specialist to perform. And so the the relationship with the audience was not seen as important. There was the famous essay called Who, who Cares If You Listen, which was sort of making the argument, which I don't necessarily disagree with, uh, you know a place in the world for music the way an advanced physicist might be. They can't have a regular conversation about their stuff with an ordinary person because the, the science is too advanced and it doesn't make sense to lay person and so there were composers and musicians working in similar spaces which music that was just not relevant to the general audience and that really took hold in a powerful way especially in, in uh, composition programs and Recording also democratized access to, well, the documentation of music. So prior to recording, the only documented music was notated music. Post recording, anything was documented. And so that exclusivity that composed music had no longer existed. So music evolved at a rapidly different rate while music schools uh, do not. and. By the 21st century, I it probably started happening in the late 1900s, but I think more and more music students and young artists were interested in a more direct relationship to the audience, and that started happening.
1: Speaking of direct relationships, we got interrupted for a minute. Someone came into the dressing room, so we're just going to pause for a second for that. Okay, back to Graham.
0: You know, so so Golden Hornet was the Austin version of that, and now there's a whole alternative classical scene in Austin that, that didn't exist back in the 90s. And you see that in London and, and New York and all over the place, parallel organizations. Bang on a cam was earlier than Golden Hornet doing similar things, having a more direct relationship to the audience, bringing in the electric guitar and the instruments that were not, didn't have a home in a traditional Western orchestra uh, or in, in composed music. So from National Sawdust to Poisson Rouge in New York and their venues that became open to this and hybrid venues that welcome different kinds of music. So you've seen it change pretty rapidly. There's a reason that institutions move slowly, and in many ways we're grateful for that, so that there's a stability to them. But uh, I think at this point, the musicians are moving much more quickly than the institutions. It's not, it's not meaning to condemn those artists who didn't have that relationship with the audience at all. It, it in a way, helps to understand, oh, that That's why, they drifted away, and it just was not part of their art making. And that's what shifted. And that doesn't mean we reject that music and that there's not a place for artists who are not interested in the audience. But we do need music education that helps those that are interested in an audience engage them.
1: Tell me about how you ended up uh, as someone who does a lot of composing for film and theater.
0: So I I moved to Austin. My only goal really was to play my music and to collaborate with other musicians to make music. And it was mostly at punk rock clubs who were the only sort of like jazz teachers when I was studying piano, were the only fit for what I was doing even though I wasn't doing jazz. We weren't doing punk rock, but it was the only venue that was sort of open-minded enough to accommodate what we were doing. But literally as soon as I played my first gig in Austin people started asking me to score things. It was like my puppet show or my experimental short or uh, whatever it was and each time uh, performed more people would ask. And so gradually each of those things saying yes to those turned into bigger projects and different projects and, and then a career in scoring and I like collaborating a lot. I like my interests were always broad, and narrowing down to just music was narrow enough for me. And so collaborating across mediums or across disciplines keeps life interesting in a way and keeps me my brain involved in things beyond music, which, which has always been something I wanted to do.
1: And so what do you think it was about your music that people were hearing that made them be like, oh, we want you to score our puppet show or
0: movie? Yeah. I mean, Most people going out to punk rock club or weren't meeting composers (laughs) and there weren't other composers playing really at at these venues. And we were playing instrumental, somewhat narrative sounding music. You know, it sounded like a film score to people, not necessarily like John Williams, but there was a melodic element. There was a, a shift in style throughout the pieces that had a story like, component. And so I I I think it just made sense for people to try to apply that to what they did or choreographers thinking, Oh, I wanna make I wanna make a dance to something in that direction
1: One collaboration tends to lead to another. The librettists for Pancho Villa were based in Mexico City, and working across the border, especially while Trump was in office, got Graham thinking about more cross-border
0: collaborations. So after Poncho, we we had been developing all sorts of relationships in Mexico City, and as well as with Mexican-American artists in Austin and wanted to move on to another project. And we started developing MXTX. And for that one, we were trying to cross a bunch of divides. Golden Hornet came from this composer background, people who write notes down that other people play. was sort of the the simplest way we thought of it. And DJ producer uh, folks who don't notate, who don't even read notation necessarily, come from such a radically different musical vocabulary. And we wanted to see what happened when we put all these people sort of in the same virtual room. So uh, we ended up making this sample library album and concert with artists from Mexico and artists from Texas. By by the end, 60 some artists were involved. 40 made this sample library loops and samples and bits of sound, things that, people can play around with and do whatever they want. It's going to be free for everyone. And then we commissioned 13 artists uh, to write something using the sample library, and then, uh, but also for an ensemble that was partly recorded in Austin, partly recorded in Mexico City to put this album together, sort of merge all the elements of, of the project. And then we'll premiere it in Austin, and then in Mexico City, and Marfa, and beyond from from there. But it's our next sort of cross-border collaboration.
1: I had hoped to use the sample library to score this episode, but when I first ran it, the library had yet to be released. Instead, Graham's publicist offered me the opportunity to use music from the album itself, which came out on April 1st. After the music from the Pancho Villa opera, everything you've heard today is from that album. I'll list the particular songs on the website. I'd like to thank Brittany Friesner from the IU Cinema for thinking of us to interview Graham, David Lobel of Lobel Arts for helping to coordinate, Alberto Varone, director of the Latino Studies Program here at Indiana University for helping to get Graham out here in the first place, and of course, Graham Reynolds himself for taking the time to talk with me.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I want to close today with another consideration of the crossing of borders. A few years ago, the poet Ross Gay wrote a collection of short essays—essayettes, he called them—about delight. One a day was his plan, and he mostly stuck to it. But whether or not he stuck to it is not what's at issue. What is at issue is the things he noticed when he started paying attention to what delighted him. It wasn't all what you might think of as delightful. Ross may laugh a lot.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: But he's no Pollyanna. It's not like he thinks we're not gonna die or that humans aren't cruel to each other. Delight is a practice for him. So today I want to share a delight about being woven together, even if our time here is limited.
2: Joy is such a human madness, the death between us. Or like this, in healthy forests, which we might imagine to exist mostly above ground, and be wrong in our imagining given as the bulk of the tree, the roots, are reaching through the earth below, there exists a constant communication between those roots and mycelium, where often the ill or weak or stressed are supported by the strong and surplused. By which I mean a tree over there needs nitrogen, and a nearby tree has extra, so the hyphae, so close to hyphen, the handshake of the punctuation world, the fungal ambulances, ferry it over, constantly. This tree to that, that to this. And that in a tablespoon of rich fungal duff, a delight, the phrase fungal duff, meaning a healthy forest soil swirling with the living the dead make, are miles and miles of hyphae. Handshakes, who get a little sugar for their work. The pronoun who turned the mushrooms into people. Yes, it did. Evolved the people into mushrooms. Because in trying to articulate what perhaps joy is, it has occurred to me that among other things, the trees and the mushrooms have shown me this, joy is the mostly invisible, the underground union between us, you and me, which is, among other things, the great fact of our life and the lives of everyone and thing we love going away. If we sink a spoon into that fact, into the depth between us, we will find it teeming. It will look like all the books ever written. It will look like all the nerves in a body. We might call it sorrow, but we might call it a union. One that, once we notice it, once we bring it into the light, might become flower and food. Might be joy.
1: That was Ross Gay, reading Joy is Such a Human Madness from his book, The Book of Delights. All right, that's it. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Ayabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer... Is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Graham Reynolds, all the people who helped coordinate our conversation, and Ross Gay. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. Additional music today is from Graham Reynolds' opera "Pancho Villa from a Safe Distance," sung by Paul Sanchez and Liz Cass, and from Golden Hornets' album "MxTx: A Cross Border Exchange." We'll link to that on our website. I want to acknowledge and honor the Miami, Delaware, Pottawatomie, and Shawnee people on whose ancestral homelands and resources Indiana University Bloomington, home of WFIU, is built, as well as the generations of workers who built it. Alright, let's listen to something. That was a woodpecker pecking on a tree at Griffey Lake in Bloomington, Indiana. In case your ear isn't totally tuned to the different kinds of peckings of various woodpeckers, that was a pileated woodpecker. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.